What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I'm actually recording this on Thursday afternoon, um, and uh, I just came back from like a two-hour thing with uh, Chris Starwalt at AI, where we talked to the Summer Honors Program, uh, which is really is a great program, and you kids out there, you should probably apply next year, or at least learn more about it. Um, and... Last night, I was up in New York because uh, Nick Gillespie at Reason asked me to do this event for him, with him, uh, where we recorded, I guess, the Reason interview podcast. Um, check it out if you're interested. We covered a lot of ground that regular listeners and regular readers have heard from me. I'm always, it's weird, one of these things I'm always like sheepish about, you know, repeating jokes that people have heard me say before and all that kind of stuff, even though it's unavoidable in my line of work. Anyway, uh, if, if, if you're interested, you know, we talked a lot about this new right stuff and Deneen and why I still don't call myself a libertarian. And it was a fun event and it was good to do. And I saw Rob Long there. It's weird how there's this whole other group of people who really don't care about the remnant, certainly don't care about the solo remnant, don't read the G file, but are just like huge Glop fans. And for those of you who don't know, Glop is this podcast. Glop stands for Goldberg, Long, and Podoritz. Um, and it's sort of a bit of a pun on Glop culture. And uh, it's increasingly becoming like three old guys at a deli just complaining about things. But uh, it's got a really, I don't know what the numbers are, but it's got a really dedicated audience. And now I got to I got to do this quick because then in about an hour, I am recording the dispatch podcast with Sarah and this guy, David French, because we have to do it later in the day because we all have these travel commitments. So it's just a, it's a it's a crazy day. And then tomorrow I'm doing like three hours of CNN first thing in the morning. Tomorrow morning will be in the past by the time you listen to this. But there it is. There you have it. So um, where to begin? I've just barely been able to read about the Supreme Court uh, decision on the Harvard and UNC cases. Um, I don't think any listeners will be particularly surprised when I say I agree with the court. doesn't mean everything that flows from this will be perfect, but perfect things don't flow from anything, really. I think Justice Roberts had it right years ago when he said the way to stop 
discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. People have sent me some really bad takes on all of this. Um, I saw Chris Hayes basically said that reading these decisions, it's something like this, reading these decisions, it really becomes clear that these Supreme Court justices are just bloggers with law libraries, which you could be sure he wouldn't have said, you know, his whole point is like, these are not, these are, these are not deep thinkers. These are not important thinkers. This is not well-reasoned. It's just, uh, you know, uh, you know, an illegitimate decision because these guys are unelected. You have people like Ian Milhauser, who is a legal guy for one of those places, Slade or Salon or something, who just routinely makes it clear that he doesn't actually know very much about the law and doesn't care very much about the law. Everything is through this sort of partisan prism. He's talking about how these unelected judges, this, that, and the other thing. In fact, Sonia Sotomayor, who I think is the least impressive of all the justices, you know, that's part of her dissent is talking about how these unelected people have done this terrible thing as if the unelected thing is a super relevant point for an unelected justice in a dissent. You know, the people who keep saying this, it, it, it really is. I was talking about this, you know, with a guy on that dumb AMA we did, um, this tendency of of all of a sudden to the the court's, you know, obvious illegitimacy has just come into light when, um, by coincidence, when conservatives, you know, get a majority on the court. I just think it's, it's really bad faith for a lot of people. And for those who are for whom it is not bad faith, it is a sign of how much their their thinking has been poisoned by partisanship. If Jackson Sotomayor and Kagan position had been the majority of position, you wouldn't have Chris Hayes bleeding about how they're just bloggers with law libraries. You'd be, oh, the wisdom of the court, right? I mean, um, just take Roe. Roe is easily one of the least judicially, logically, legally, constitutionally sound decisions of the last, you know, well, 50 plus years. And everyone talks about, you know, the people who like it talk about how it's brilliant or how it's settled and all these kinds of things. They never talk about its legitimacy. They think people who question its legitimacy are are committing some sort of hate crime. Um, but sending this, you know, sending this stuff back down to the states uh, is, you know, this outrage proves that the court is no longer relevant and doesn't have, you know, democratic legitimacy and all this kind of thing. And I just think it's it's really kind of obvious where where this stuff is coming from um my own view by the way is like this will not be the horror show that people are talking i, mean, I saw someone on, so I, li- I heard someone i was listening in the car because i was driving around all over the place um i heard someone in the car on msnbc talking about how you know were there will there even be you know black lawyers and doctors after this um yeah, guess what? There will be. And it's kind of weirdly racist and condescending to think that there wouldn't be. Um, you know, look, the University of Michigan, the University of California system, um, they've been barred from using race and admissions for years. And they are not some, you know, these the, the schools are not run by the Klan. You know, there's it's it's the the catastrophization about this is really kind of amazing 
And what's also sort of remarkable to me is how much of, you know, I was saying to my wife earlier when she was driving me to help me to get me to pick up my car from the thing and whatever, you know, it's really kind of astounding this notion about diversity um, being essential. And when I say diversity, I mean a really specific racial kind of diversity, right? That diversity is essential to a good education is a fairly new idea. This is not, that was not the argument behind affirmative action, you know, when LBJ rolled it out in the 1960s. It was not the argument for um, racial quotas and admissions or, you know, using race um, so heavy-handedly um, until the old arguments lost in court. And then all of a sudden you had these guys, you know, I can't remember the guy's name, the president of Columbia, um, you know, they started making these arguments about how being exposed to people of different races um, was as important as understanding Shakespeare and, you know, history and all of these kinds of things. You can argue this in front of the Supreme Court. And I'm open to that. I mean, I just don't think it's actually true. And besides, all these schools aren't teaching Shakespeare. But um, the, the actual reality on the ground, if you visit college campuses, is that to a large extent, with the aiding and abetting of the administrations, large numbers of the black students who are admitted basically self-segregate. You know, they, eat, they all eat together in the cafeteria. They have, you know, sometimes they have their own dorms, their own housing. I, I don't blame them. I'm not, this is not a criticism of, 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 of black students who want to live that way. That's totally fine. You know, they're Jewish frats. They're all sorts of self-sorting kind of things. They're Asian student associations, you know. It's, but, like, the idea that these admission policies are causing people, are causing white people, because this is sort of the in, intent behind some of this, to be more fully exposed to black perspectives, I just don't think is, is true on the reality to the extent that people claim. And in fact, I've always thought that if you really wanted to sort of have that, you would require, you know, interracial dorms and housing and roommates and all that kind of stuff. You also, you know, you wouldn't have something like, I, I don't know what the number is for Harvard, but it's a big number. Um, these are, uh, you know, a lot of their African-American students are black kids, aren't African-Americans. They're Africans. They're kids of the African elite in Africa who send their kids to Ivy League schools because they know they'll have, first of all, schools love taking foreign students because at least at a lot of schools, I don't know if this is the case at Harvard. I assume it is. I know it's the case at the school my daughter goes to, um, which is an elite school, um, not Harvard, but whatever. Um, they like foreign exchange students or foreign students in part because they can charge them the full ride. They don't have to give anybody student aid. Um, and I assume there's probably some student aid for some of the African immigrant kids who come to America. And again, I have no problem taking African immigrant kids at these universities. These universities can take whoever they want, really. But you can't say that you're remedying past historical discrimination if you're beefing up your numbers um, with quotas from uh, rich kids from Africa. And so anyway, I just think, I think a lot of this really has a lot more to do with people freaking out about these schools not being able to shape and have the power to do what they want sort of ideologically. And race is the kind of is the kind of is the is the prism through which this panic 
kind of expresses itself. Anyway, uh, I want to read more about it. We're going to talk about it on the Dispatch podcast, so I'll just sort of leave it there for a second. So uh, let me, yeah, let me, let me do this. So I wrote a Wednesday G file. If you were a Dispatch subscriber, you would have it. You could see it. It's weird. I, so I started writing this uh, piece about sort of the fundamental nature of politics, which is, you know, basically it's the, the study of the regulation. It's not the study, right? Politics is the, is the word, it, it describes how we regulate the use of power and, you know, political stuff in terms of government is how we regulate and distribute uh, formal power. But politics also describes how we, um, how the workings of informal power, right? There's not a lot of formal, not a lot of rules. There's not like a constitution or a law book you can point to, to guide you about high school politics, right? Or faculty politics for the most part, or office politics. Um, if you're a, if you're not as popular as you want to be in high school, you can't go and talk to some judge or um, some administrator and say and quote the rules and say, "See, look at all these things I got going for me. I should be more popular than this." Right? It's all informal. You got to work with it within these sort of intangible, informal rules. And in fact, if you're the kind of person who would love to have some bylaws to make them, you know, that they could invoke to argue about why they should be more popular. You're not going to be that popular, right? You're a pretty dorky dude um, or gal. But anyway, I was thinking about all of this and then, you know, I got about, I don't know, 500, 600 words, something like that into doing this. And, and then I had this parenthetical aside where I just said, Hey, let me explain why I'm doing this. Cause this is a really weird thing. It's not like, these issues are in the news right now. And it turns out that like my parenthetical aside got so long that I decided I was just going to make basically that the newsletter. And I took out all the politics and power stuff. I'll save it and write about it again someday. The reason why I was doing it is I've, I find myself, you know, I, I, I say that. And again, I apologize if you read the G file, this is a little repetitive, but I'll, keep, I'll try to keep it short. You guys have heard me say a bunch of times that I'm, politically homeless, but ideologically grounded, right? And what I mean by that is like, I, I, I know what I think about my own philosophy about government and politics and to a certain extent life or whatever, right? I know what I think about why I think the things that I think. I mean, that was a big part of, it was one of the big benefits of writing Suicide of the West is it really sort of made me go through why do I think this stuff? But one of the problems, I think one of the great things about Suicide of the West, I'm, you know, and I, I do think it's a good book. I honestly do. Um, but what I tried to do in that book was speak to a basic good faith progressive reader or to a conservative who wanted to engage progressives in good faith. And what I mean by that is like, I didn't have, I didn't want to make any partisan arguments, wasn't interested in that. And I made no, you know, the, I, I've talked about this a million times, you know, the first sentence of the book is there's no God in this book, because what I didn't want to do was make an argument based on an appeal to authority, right? I wanted to make an argument based on 
marshaling facts and and logic and reason, right? And sort of wanted to show my homework about what I believe and why I believe it. And and why I think you should be grateful to be an American and you should be grateful to be uh, part of Western civilization. And I think you should be grateful that you've basically been born in this time and not some other time. You should be grateful for the enlightenment and that when you have gratitude, it opens your heart and it makes you want to preserve the things that you think need to be preserved. Anyway, you know all this stuff. And, but again, it was basically aimed leftward. I, would, I wouldn't say purely by coincidence because I think some of the reasons why I wrote the book in the background, sort of the Trump stuff and all that, um, but while I was writing that book and then while I was promoting that book, uh, the, this other attack on Western civilization, on capitalism, on the market, on liberalism, on conservatism, as I know it and understand it, um, had opened up and it wasn't from the left. It was from the right. You know, and, and the book has a lot of stuff about why the right is wrong about populism. I've been making these arguments for a very long time. But basically, it wasn't, it, it, it just wasn't structured around, you know, dealing directly with what you could call attacks on conservatism from the right. Now, some of the defenses of liberal democratic capitalism and all that kind of stuff that work against the left's attacks also work against these things from the new right, in part because the new right's attacks are very similar to some of the attacks on the left. I mean, the horseshoe theory, which drives me crazy that I now have to sort of accept that horseshoe theory is kind of more real than I long claimed. But I, I should note in my defense, the reason why horseshoe theory now makes a lot, of, lot more sense is because of the rise of this new right saying that, you know, the far left and the far right were really similar in America doesn't make sense if the right in America was essentially classically liberal or libertarian with some, with, with some uh, cultural conservatism thrown in. I will have, I will, uh, I'll get into horseshoe theory more on another time. But, so anyway, I find myself, you know, I, you know, there's this famous old line from, one of the the New York intellectuals from the, I think it's from the like the fifties, the old partisan review crowd, maybe it was the forties, who says to some left winger, you know, your arguments are so old, I've forgotten the answers to them, and something like that. I find myself like, like I can. It's very easy for me to explain why some form of originalism is really important when arguing with left-wingers, but it's kind of a new experience to have to argue it with right-wingers. And again, you can use a lot of the same arguments, but you know, when, when you have the, a lot of these people on the new right attacking the fundamental organization and structure and tradition of the, you know, first of all, the United States of America, but also sort of the Anglo-American political tradition and really of the, the English and Scottish and Enlightenments in particular and the, you know, the Enlightenment in general. This is one of these points, again, you gotta, it's important to make is when people talk about the Enlightenment, there wasn't one Enlightenment. There were different Enlightenments that differed in approach, 
in important ways. And so, you know, the, the Scottish and French Enlightenments are not synonymous. The German Enlightenment was kind of a hot mess. B. Himmelfarb, or sorry, Gertrude Himmelfarb, B. Crystal, Irving Crystal's wife, who was an eminent English historian, I think her book is called Three Paths to the Enlightenment, you know, and she talks about how there were the English, the French, or maybe it was, anyway, it's three, I can't remember if it's like the Scottish Enlightenment, the French Enlightenment, and the American Enlightenment, or if it's the Scottish and the English Enlightenment and the American Enlightenment. But anyway, she talks about how there are these different Enlightenments, and I'm, I, I apologize for mucking around with that. And so anyway, I just find myself wanting to sort of go back to first principles and start this process of thinking about politics and philosophy, again, more from the ground up because I kind of feel like the arguments in defense of Western civilization, the arguments in defense of liberal democratic capitalism that um, I think are best against left-wing critiques or, or normal ignorant critiques, because a lot of them are just, you know, dispelling ignorance, are different than the sort of right-wing critiques of the, of, of, of the Constitution and of Western civilization and all that. I mean, like there's a line in Deneen's book where he says, you know, something like people spend too much time talking about whether the problems with Western civilization is whether it was structurally racist, when in reality it was, the problem is it was structurally liberal um, or something to that effect. And that's just a weird argument. It's, it's not a weird argument. It's a weird criticism, right? It's like, oh, no, the Western civilization, it's, it's fatal flaws that it's liberal. <laughs> okay, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> um, it overturns everything that we were taught about the American founding, about you know, enlightenment principles generally, about American culture to a large extent. And so, anyway, I'm sort of more interested in a lot of that stuff than a lot of like the political controversies of the day. And I go into the thing about, you know, part of the reason for that is that I've really just lost that ability to instinctively, reflexively come to the defense of the GOP. I'm not saying the GOP is always wrong, you know, on, on most policy priorities, nearly all policy priorities that immediately come to mind. I think the Republican version is going to be better than the Democratic version. I, I'm sure there are exceptions to that. But, you know, as a general rule, the Republican Party is more conservative than the Democratic Party. But the Republican Party is also just so full of, well, it's so full of BS, first of all. But second of all, a lot of the time, the problems with the Republican Party is that they're just offering um, sort of right-wing versions of bad left-wing ideas and saying, oh, this is different because... You know, they're conservative, right? You know, um, conservative industrial policy will work. Conservative, you know, protectionism is smart. I don't think it's conservative. I don't think it's smart. And I don't think like, you know, saying, you know, like I've always had a problem with me too Republicans. It's an old phrase, goes way back. Um, but being a me too Republican about Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, you know, policy agenda, the way J.D. Vance often is, just strikes me as like banana town. And then you add in, you know, all of the sycophancy around Trump, all of the clearly deliberately dishonest and, 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 and deranged at times, you know, attempts to sort of invoke conspiracy theories and other sorts of garbage spin to defend, you know, 
Trump and his behavior and, and really sort of throw the justice system under the bus, throw the rule of law under the bus, embrace, you know, cult of personality stuff. Um, like, my point is, I just, I, I, I owe the GOP nothing. And these last eight years have demonstrated to me how, I don't think I was ever a big water carrier for the GOP. Like I criticized George W. Bush and compassionate conservatism and the expansion of government under him and the deficit spending and all of that stuff um, quite a bit. And I can, I have receipts. I can show I did. Um, but I still sort of, as a conservative columnist and TV guy, you know, there was something in me that when I saw the Democrats or the left freaking out or attacking Republicans for doing X, I sort of started as a baseline to look for why the Republicans were right. And sometimes I, you know, looked and I said, ah, I don't think they're right, you know. Um, but I still kind of had that team player kind of inspiration, you know, or sense of obligation or compulsion to like, you know, roll my eyes at, you know, the way the New York Times was freaking out about some, about this or that, or, or how you know, it was the Democrats who were being crazy partisan or hypocrites or whatever. I've lost that. I really have. I mean, I'm sure there are specific issues at specific times where it kind of comes back a little bit, but for the most part, you know, uh, like I can't defend, I, I, I feel no obligation to rise in defense of the GOP about every, anything, even when it's right. Like I'm fine with making arguments in favor of the conservative position. Um, I'm fine with making arguments in, you know, in defense of specific politi politicians who are making, spe taking specific positions on specific policies and stuff. But I just, I just think the, the current GOP as it is constructed is either so corrupt, so dysfunctional, or so cowardly um, on an institutional level um, that, like... If you're looking for those kinds of takes, I just I'm just not interested in them. I don't I don't get the sort of creative juices going to to write that stuff anymore. And what I really want to do is I want to go back and I want to look at like what um you know what is the argument for separation of powers or whatever, right? You know, what is you know what what is the the role of politics and in, in, in the informal and formal relations and distribution of power. I find that stuff captures my attention and I'm engaged and I want to think it through. And, um, and so I just, I wrote the thing to sort of just be like, Hey, I'm going to be doing more of this and less of the, can you believe what Joe Biden said today thing, you know, or, or even can you believe what Donald Trump said today thing? Um, still a political pundit. I still got to do some of that stuff. I'm, you know, I'm still interested in politics, generally speaking, but, um, I'm just sort of numb to the trials and tribulations within the Republican party. And it's, um, and I just wanted to be honest with, with readers about where I was coming from and write something that when somebody says, Hey, you stinking rhino, why aren't you, you know, angrier about this or why aren't you writing about that? I could, you know, sort of like, like the, the Simpsons mean about tapping the sign, I can just say, here's why, show them that. So that's why I wrote it. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have 
unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash remnant. That's tnusa.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So on that point, let me also address something specific. This morning, um, you know, I got up at five in the morning so I could get a train back to DC to do this thing at AEI and yada, yada, yada. And I saw that there were some commenters, some readers, uh, or some listeners to the episode I did with Brett Devereaux, who were just taking it, asserting that, you know, all my talk about like the ancient Romans being sort of mafia like in their assumptions about power and the way they talk about power and asking questions about like, Maybe do we inflate the grandiosity of the Roman Empire by having everybody talk like Lawrence Olivier and John Gielgud, um, and that wasn't the Roman Empire, it's sort of a more earthy, recognizable thing as sort of a warlord system and all that kind of stuff, that, um, that this was just, you know, me being an anti-Italian bigot on full display. And I take offense at it. I mean, I really do. I don't think it's fair. I think I've earned sort of the benefit of the doubt on this kind of thing that like I can be in error, but the idea that like I am cavalierly just being um, openly and, and self-consciously bigoted towards any group of people, um, you know, never mind Italians, um, I just think it's just unfair. Um, that's how I read it. I don't think, huh, wow, you got a point there. Um, I might about like how I might have phrased something and I have to go back and listen. 
Um, but I think the way I talk about it, the way I was thinking about it in the spirit of sort of an open conversation where we're just sort of spitballing things was totally legitimate and fine. And, um, I just, and I reject the accusation of bad faith or, or, or invidious bigotry on my part as, as a explanation of where I was coming from. Again, I could have, I could be wrong. I certainly could have been too sweeping um, in, in how I, you know, in making the comparison, I think I acknowledge, you know, it's like the, the modern mafia sort of based itself in some ways on the Roman empire and in, in, in a self-conscious kind of way. And I think I also acknowledge that that doesn't mean that the mafia was a descendant necessarily mean that the mafia was a descendant of the Roman empire, right? This was not like, you know, stray legions decided to become feudal warlords and that's where the mafia comes from. That was not what I was arguing. Um, but I think, you know, the, the, the sort of mafia comparison is really interesting. And, the, and, and, uh, and I'll, so let me sort of explain why in a more coherent way, maybe. I mean, if you still think I am an Italian, anti-Italian bigot, I can't help you. I love Italian people, think Italian people are great. Been to Italy a gazillion times. You know, I've written... I wrote it at length in my first book that, you know, one of the reasons why, and I've talked about this in speeches for years, one of the reasons why, like, Italian fascism was nowhere near as evil as German Nazism is because the Italian people are just a better people in this regard. Like, they're, they, just, they don't have the, the sort of thinking, and like, if you think I'm being cruel or unfair to Germans, you know, so be it, as they, um, you know, like, like the Germans beat themselves up enough as it is like my joining pylon won't change anything but you know like if you read hitler's willing executioners i think he overstates the case but you know the germans going way back way back a thousand years um before uh you know the rise of nazism 800 years something like that there was a there's a regular motif or trend of Jew, anti-Jewish eliminationism, right? I mean, there are lots of attempts to destroy, eliminate, eradicate, liquidate Jews long before Hitler came up with the idea in Germany. You know, if you read some of the stuff from Martin Luther about burning the synagogues and driving out all the Jews, I mean, again, there's a lot of this in German history. Not so much in Italian history. Yeah, I mean, look, there was a Jewish ghetto and like Jews were not exactly always first class citizens in Italy and all that kind of stuff. But Italy was a friend to Jews compared to the, all, the other options. And also, you know, Italy just didn't, you know, it, the, to the extent there was anti-Semitism in Italy, it was theological anti-Semitism. It wasn't biological anti-Semitism. You know, the Italians did more to save Jewish lives um, during World War II than a lot of allied countries did. The Italians were the first to send troops into harm's way to save uh, Jewish lives. Um, if you read, um, oh gosh, now I can't remember. It's like Italians in the Holocaust or something like that. You know, the, the, the Nazis were constantly haranguing the Italians to uh, hand over their Jews. And not only did the Italians refuse to hand over Italian Jews, they refused to hand over any Jews 
of any nationality that were in Italian-controlled territory until 38, when Mussolini becomes Hitler's bitch. And after 38, Italy basically becomes a vassal state of, of Hitler, and things get worse and worse for Jews in Italy, but that's because of the Nazis forcing the hands of Italians in a lot of places. Not saying every Italian fascist was a great friend of the Jews by any stretch of the imagination. Lots of individual thuggery, thugs and all that kind of stuff. Just the Italians weren't genocidal people. And I mean, maybe they were Roman times, but they aren't, you know, they weren't in the 1930s. And as a general rule, if you were a Jew, you know, in the 1930s and you couldn't get to America, you wanted to go west and then you wanted to go south. You didn't want to stay in France because the French handed over their Jews. The Italians didn't and the Spanish didn't. Um, and they were, you know, they're, you know, like Italy was expressly fascist and the, the Spanish were constantly told were fascist when in fact it's, it's a little more complicated than that. All right. So I didn't mean to get into all that thing. I like Italians. I love Italy. Um, and not just the food, I think the culture, you know, the Italian contribution, Italy has been punching above its weight in contributions to civilization more arguably than over a longer period of time than any other country of the West. Um, if you just think about what we get from Rome um, and then, you know, the Italian Renaissance and all that, I mean, it is, uh, I, you know, obviously I'm more partial to England's contributions, but you can't sort of dismiss Italy's. Italian people are warm, generous, lovely people. Okay, I'm done. I'm doing this. I, I resent having to even say some of those things, not because I don't believe them, but because I don't think it should be necessary. That said, look, I've been fascinated with these ideas about what civilization looks like if you remove Western liberal constructs from it, right? What is sort of the the natural form of social organization. That's why I talk about the tribes stuff so much. I'm so that's why I'm so interested in like the the formation of prison gangs, right? I have this whole thing that I get from Mansur Olson about the where the state comes from, and I have been sold on this argument that it comes from the stationary bandit. You know, this is this idea that if you're a roving bandit, right, like the Vikings or like the wolf warrior types in China or whatever, you know, like there were roving bandits everywhere. And your whole socio-political, socio-economic model for your enterprise is raid villages, take their stuff and move on to the next village. And Olson makes this point that over time you hit diminishing returns very quickly because the villages aren't going to always rebuild as good as they had it. They aren't going to plant more crops and make investments if they think, oh, well, just next spring they're going to get raided again. But if instead of being a roving bandit, you're a stationary bandit and you set up shop and you offer protection, you will actually and you say, look, we'll, we won't take everything. We'll take half or we'll take a quarter. That creates a positive incentive structure for the residents of the village to think more long term, to plant, to grow because they know they'll now be protected by this stationary bandit, right? That's the deal. That's the exchange. That's the contract is we get to take our cut, but you'll be safe. And almost every village takes this deal because it's a good, I mean, it's not a good deal by modern terms, but in the, you know, in, in the pre, in prehistoric, or I should say, you know, in up until fairly recently, it was a pretty good deal, right? And, the, and this is the argument for, you know, as, as Nock would put it, why the state is, you know, basically a glorified term 
for you know, how all states were born in crime. And there's a real truth to that, right? You know, the the aristocracy of the sword, the old warrior caste that become the, arist- the first aristocrats or and noblemen around Europe, they did how did they become noblemen? They were warlords, you know? And but anyway, the point is is like once you become a stationary bandit, you become uh, you know a noble with a tie to the land. Um, it's actually in your interest over time to invest more in the resources. Like maybe use some, tell some of your soldiers, "Hey, look, on Wednesday, instead of foraging, um, I want you to dig a irrigation canal so we can, you know, uh, uh, develop that field, or we can drain that swamp so we have more farmland and we'll get a cut, right?" Um, and this is, I think, sort of a very rudimentary way of understanding where the state comes from. I'm really fascinated by what Douglas North, who was a famous institutional economist, uh, wrote a really horribly written book. I mean, I, I cannot emphasize this enough. Do not go out and buy this book if you're planning, if you are not a really, really strong reader who um, doesn't mind having to wade through incredibly turgid prose to get at some important ideas. But Violence and Social Orders is a really fascinating book. And it had a big impact on me. Um, I I owe it to my friend Ron Bailey for introducing me to it. Um, And his whole, you know, argument is that, you know, the, the, the modern state that we have, I can't remember what his term for it is, is 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 not only rare in history, it's rare in the present moment. Most states are what he calls natural states. And natural state is like one of these things that that works at scale with human beings, right? That you can you can scale up from the tribe to the city state to an actual, you know, multi-city state under this concept of the natural state. Um, because basically what it is is it's 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 monarchy, it's, you know, czardom, it's, it's uh, strongman leadership, uh, where basically a coalition of elites have control, first of all, over the use of violence, but moreover, over the um, natural resources, means of production, all that, right? And... Um, sometimes you get, uh, you know, the development, often you get, you know, the development of a separate cast of elites who are legitimizers of those in power, right? The, you know, the, the priests who come along and say, uh, the warlord king has a divine right to the throne kind of thing. And this happens again and again and again and again and again and again and again all around the world for the last 10,000 years. And it happens in different ways in different sequences, but once established, these kinds of natural states can endure indefinitely without ever making the transition to what we would call modernity or liberalism. They, they work in the sense that they don't, they are not internally flawed in their logic. That's why, you know, monarchies persist all around the world. It's not like one country got the idea for monarchy. Monarchy is like this thing, you might have different names for it, that is kind of an emergent property of strongmanism, of stationary banditism. And a lot of the rules about the interaction between the different coalitions of elites that control things 
um, work on, I mean, this is a big part of Fukuyama's book. You know, they work on um, informal contracts of, you know, uh, this is why everywhere in the world ever recorded, um, you know, people, first of all, we're, we're wired this way as individuals. I should back up. We're wired this way as individuals to care more for and do more and be more altruistic to relatives than we are to friends. And we're more um, altruistic and, and cooperative with friends than we are with strangers. This may sound like a really obvious point, but it's amazing how many bad political ideas are premised on an assumption that there's not a really meaningful distinction between friend and stranger or relative and friend, right? These are important distinctions. And part of the whole process of Western civilization, you know, and civilization is that, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's also a verb, right? We are, we are civilizing ourselves, um, is dealing with the incredibly thorny problem of favoritism towards first relatives, but also towards friends. And I talk about this a lot in my book. There's this, you know, like we get ne the term nepotism means nephewism because you had all of these, you know, high ranking uh, figures in the Catholic church had all of these quote unquote nephews. Sometimes they were actual nephews, but more often they were their children via their mistresses. And, um, and they would allocate church resources which back then meant something, right? Because there was like, there were papal lands and all sorts of things. Um, they would allocate these resources to their blood relatives um, and appoint blood relatives, usually children, nephews, whatever, um, to positions of power. And this is a real problem for the church. It's one of the reasons why, um, you know, you get, I mean, I know there are doctrinal and theological reasons for celibacy and, not marrying and all that kind of stuff. But there were also sort of like policy reasons um, that, you know, explain some of it. But forget the Catholic Church, right? This is, this is why you had eunuchs in large, you know, in all sorts of empires. Um, uh, you know, the Turks had, you know, uh, whole, you know, eunuch armies. And they would also like, they, what was the name of the, the Turkish? Oh God, my brain. It's a long day. You know, they would steal, they would take, young Christian kids from the Balkans. And so they had no family relationship whatsoever. And they would only be loyal to the, the Sultan or whatever, because again, this problem of favoritism for family was a huge problem for the state. Same thing with the, with the eunuch sort of bureaucrats in China. It works for a while and then it doesn't, right? Because this tribal sense that we have um, can be triggered not just for actual blood relatives, but for members of your own sort of platoon. You know, Praetorians became their own force. Yevgeny uh, uh, Prigozhin's uh, Wagner group, you know, became a thing. This is what happens with prison gangs, which, you know, is really kind of, you know, a fascinating example of the natural formation of these sort of quasi or mini states. And that's why people, the same people who study prison gangs study the mafia for these reasons, because the notions of reciprocity and favor trading and um, sort of us against them and that patronage and friendship are more important than, than the law 
Um, these are these are very common traits, and there's there one of the things that makes the mafia sort of fascinating is how fleshed out they are as a code, as a as an understanding about how to organize things. And I think that that stuff is really interesting about you know the Roman Empire. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it? <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. But I should also say, like, like I mean, again, I, I, I've been, like, the first 10 episodes of The Remnant, I talked about you know, this uh, this essay by Paul Ray where he makes this fantastic argument about the Godfather. Um, I probably, you know, I, I used to talk about it incessantly. It used to be on the bingo card, but people got tired of hearing about it. But just so people, you know, I'll remind people who don't know, um, and I haven't reread the essay in a long time, but there's this, you know, the, the, the movie, The Godfather, opens with Don Corleone on his daughter's wedding day. You know, he gets visited. He can't deny anybody a favor. Um, and this guy, Bonacera, comes to ask for justice about the boys who roughed up his daughter, right, and tried to rape his daughter. There's this long exchange, I should have had it in front of me to read from it, but there's this long exchange where Corleone, Don Corleone is like, why do you disrespect me? Why do you, why do you treat me this way? And Bonacera doesn't know what he's talking about because as they get into it, Bonacera there is there because he tried to go to the courts he tried to use American law injustice, and it turned out to be corrupt. So he was turning in a transactional way to Don Corleone, and Don Corleone is offended by this. Um, he says, well, "You don't come to me as a friend, even though you know um, my wife is the godmother to your children. You know, you're you're coming to me in effect as like a just a hired goon." And he says, look, you tried it your way, you know, the courts and stuff, and, and you didn't get what you wanted. But if you had been my friend from the beginning, um, these boys would have gotten justice. And the scene sort of culminates with Bonacera finally understanding and saying, will you be my friend? And, and this, this concept of friendship is this ancient sort of Roman concept of friendship that Brett Devereaux was talking about, about, you know, uh, that's tied up with things like fidelity and, 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 and reciprocity and patronage and, um, and why I think the scene is so fascinating and why I think it's such a cool insight is, you know, uh, Bonacera's name is Amerigo Bonacera, which means good night America. And what Bonacera is doing is in part because of the flaws of the, of, of America in the 19, what, 40s, he is giving up on the American project, the Enlightenment-based project of the rule of law, of fair and, and honest courts, and instead turning back to the more natural form of political organization, which is tribal loyalty and patronage, clannish loyalty and patronage, where Don Corleone is essentially the stationary bandit. And that's sort of like one of the big inspirations for my whole thing about identity politics, about populism, about corruption generally, my problem with the way Trump and Trumpists conceive of power 
is this idea of, you know, for my friends, everything, for my enemies, the law, right? That everything becomes personalist. That's what the political scientist types talk about when they talk about, you know, like what Edmund Burke or John Locke would call arbitrary power, where the regime is sort of boiled down to the personal desires and whims and ambitions of a single autocrat. Anyway, that's where I'm coming from when I'm, I'm interested in this stuff about the Roman Empire and how it's understood and how it's talked about. And, um, and that's what I was trying to get at. And if I offended people in some way, well, I know I offended some people uh, who apparently have been just simmering with this idea that I am, you know, an anti-Italian bigot. I, I apologize for offering um, what they take as confirmation of that. But that's where I'm coming from with this. I find this kind of thing really fascinating. You know, it's like, this is one of the reasons why I've stuck with The Walking Dead is how when you get rid of technological Western law-based civilization, what what gets recreated isn't, you know, the Magna Carta and the constitutional order. What first gets created are these little, you know, city-states um, based on personalist power. You know, Negan is a stationary bandit. And, and I wrote something about it. And so Kevin Williamson wrote some good stuff about it too. And I think because, you know, Donald, Donald Trump has a real mafia of, uh, you know, obsession because he kind of ran his business all his life as this sort of personalist little fiefdom where his, all of his understanding comes from New York City, you know, and the, the unseemly grosser, more corrupt parts of New York City machine politics. That's how he views politics, right? That's how he views the law. He doesn't think the law is this, this independent thing that has authority and legitimacy um, beyond his needs and concerns. He thinks that, like, if the law is against him, that's proof that the law is bad and the people who are enforcing the law hate him and are against him and are corrupt. Um, he cannot get out of this sort of personalist mindset. And that's why he has such a crush on all of these dictators and autocrats is because he, he likes, that's the prism that he thinks politics, that reflects the reality of politics and that reflects the best version of himself. And um, anyway, I've, find all that stuff interesting. And I will be returning to it because this is, you know, this is where the sort of the kind of stuff that I want to explore because of these new right assaults on the miracle of, of, of the last 300 years and of the continuing progress with fits and starts and ups and downs and setbacks and drawbacks and yada, yada, yada and trade-offs. Um, but the, the progress we've been making over the last 300 years they want to reject, right? They want to go back to some form of power being only legitimate when it's an, an assertion of their point of view, their desires, their whims, their ambitions. Um, and that is not a new idea. That is among the oldest ideas that exist in politics. All right. I, I really could go on with this. And I wanted to talk about some other things, including some pop culture stuff, but maybe I'll save it for Glop. Um, but I got to go do this dispatch podcast thing now. And thanks everybody for listening. Please, if you can, you know, the, I didn't intend that 
G file to be this sort of like pitch for the dispatch, but there's a real, you know, there's a real uh, sort of analog. My, my views are kind of, and not just because I'm a co-founder, but like because of the kind of people the dispatch has attracted both as readers, but also as staffers, this sort of, yeah, we're center right, but we have no interest in sort of water carrying for the GOP or for either party. Um, and I, you know, and I should just be real clear. When I say water carrying, there are some people who I just think are absolute partisan hacks, you know, and some people can probably guess who I have in mind about some of that stuff. I mean, some people in the, in the media, right? Um, I think there are an enormous number of partisan hacks on the left. I think there are an enormous number of partisan hacks on the right. But not all of the partisans are hacks. There are some people who sincerely believe that the job of being a liberal public intellectual or a liberal opinion person or a liberal columnist or whatever is to offer arguments and defenses that best help the Democratic Party do the things that they think that they sincerely think should be done in terms of politics and public policy. Similarly, there are people on the right who think that the role of the conservative public intellectual, the conservative columnist, whatever, is to provide the best arguments possible to advance the Republican Party and its agenda. They don't say things they don't believe to be true. They're not liars. They don't change their positions, right? There's this orientation that they have, which I, and I think I fell to some extent in that sort of camp for a very long time, is that since the GOP is bad about making its own, uh, uh, making the best arguments for its positions, that it's going to fall to people, to conservative columnists and conservative writers to give them better arguments and to explain to them why they want to do, have this policy or that policy, right? I don't think there's anything inherently bad faith or dishonest or corrupt about that stuff. I just think that there's, that it's, it's mistaken in a certain fundamental way when taken to some extremes. Um, yeah, I, I have no respect for the, the, the truly partisan hacks who really will just sort of change their positions based upon what's best for the party they like at any given moment or, or will change their positions with just the tiniest little bit of flattery from some politician. Those people exist. I'm talking about the people who are serious about this stuff and they think that like the role of an intellectual is to help affect change through politics and they are making real arguments to do that. I think that the, the problem, what's been bad about that for conservatism, I'm not going to speak to liberalism, although there's a lot of it on the left too. I mean, a lot. I think it's basically the, Demo the, the New Republic's project off and on for the last you know, couple decades. Um, but I think the problem with it for conservatism as an independent, institutional, cultural, philosophical entity is that it, if you approach questions based upon whether or not they will get votes or be good for the politicians that you like, rather than on their own specific merits, it's, um, it, it is a way to sort of over time um, lose your bearings and start to see start to see yourself as basically a glorified political consultant for a party rather than an independent thinker. And I just think it's a danger. 
And that's the kind, anyway, I bring all that up just to say that, you know, what we're trying to do at the dispatch, both on the repertorial side and on the editorial side is keep our bearings, right? Is like, if there's something that we think is right or wrong or stupid, we don't first go against, do a gut check about whether it's good or bad for a party. And I think there are a lot of people who welcome that. At least I think there are a lot of people who respect the effort, even if they disagree with our perspective on this, that, or the other thing. And, you know, say what you will about Kevin Williamson and, and Nick Cattaggio and Scott Linsicum and Sarah and David when he wasn't dead to me um, and Steve and also a lot of people behind the scenes that whose names you may not know is that they're at the dispatch because they want to, they really care about telling the truth and offering facts and having a certain amount of critical distance from day-to-day political pressures. And I think there are a lot of people who appreciate that effort. And if it sounds like that's a sort of effort that you would appreciate too, or that you do appreciate, and you're not a subscriber, you could join up and it would help us enormously. So anyway, thanks very much. Now, Sarah's going to yell at me because I'm late. So I'll talk to you later.